Hey listeners, I'm Eric Taylor, and this is The Hair Game. New Salon Republic openings, Torrance in the South Bay of LA, will open in August, Escondido in San Diego County, Valencia, and Burbank are opening in September. Go to salonrepublic.com for more information or hit the link in my Instagram bio, Love Eric Taylor. Also in the news, the Hair Game Podcast has its own Alexa briefing skill. You can now get a new highlight clip from the podcast every day on any Alexa-enabled device. Just search for the Hair Game Podcast on your Alexa app. And now, the weekly Podloot giveaway. I want to do something interesting for this one, so here it is. I'm going to take the winner plus one, could be a friend, husband, wife, partner, whoever you want to bring, out to lunch or dinner in L.A. Now, some of you who are listening are in other states and other countries, so if the winner doesn't live close enough to make that possible, I'll buy a $100 gift certificate to your favorite restaurant wherever you are. And then you can act like I'm there having dinner with you. We can FaceTime. Just kidding. We won't FaceTime. All right. And the winner is Tasha Creates and Educates. DM me at Leverick Taylor and we'll put it on the calendar. I'll tell you what next week's pod loot giveaway will be at the end of this episode. Okay, so I'm Allison Alhamid, as you know, editor-in-chief of Modern Salon, and we love Salon Republic, and we love Eric, and what an honor that you've invited me to come sit with you, and now the tables are turned. You're used to being the one asking the questions, and what an honor to invite me to do that. Thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. I love following you on Instagram. I love seeing, like, your daily activities, but this is a new relationship for me, so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about how we even got to where we are today. Yes, absolutely. But before we start, and I'm I'm already taking over the podcast, and I don't mean to, but I want to let the podcast listeners know just how good Allison looks right now. (laughs) Her foundation, I said, her skin looks like the skin of my seven-year-old daughter right now. It's incredible. That's the nicest thing. That's one of the limitations of a a podcast, that I can't let everybody see that. Well, I'm very skinny, just so you know. I'm just kidding, complete opposite of that, but. I'm perfect. (laughs) I'm perfect, yeah, not so much, but I had a lot of, um, we're sitting in the most beautiful room in Long Beach, California. Beautiful as in natural lighting, but if you have a little bit of flaws on your face it's the worst lighting so I'm excited to hear that yes you think I look you're nice. flawless That's so nice. see I'm buttering you up thank you before the questions get asked I'm excited my okay. sleeves are gonna be rolled up soon all right so okay um, from what I know from following you on Instagram and following some of my favorite hair superheroes you are the founder and owner of one of the coolest salon spaces on the west coast thank you i feel like i'm blushing you should be everybody he's blushing and his skin (laughs) looks like that of a (laughs) seven-year-old um you really you've really carved out a great space um you attract really serious top talent and then you also help grow that talent through salon republic and through this podcast and through everything that you guys are doing to help elevate the industry so i want to learn more about how that even started so Are you a hairdresser? Not a hairdresser. I'm from Dallas originally. I um, went to high school like a normal person. I played sports. I went to college. Uh, I went to Pepperdine uh, on a baseball scholarship. I played for only one year because I hurt myself. And then I studied finance, graduated. Um, I was deathly afraid of graduating and not having 
much of a plan. So, Are you an only child? No, I'm the youngest of two. My um, brother's uh, four years older. He became an architect. Um, his kind of journey towards architecture was a product of both of our upbringings, being the kids of an artist, mom, and a business person, dad. My dad, at his peak, had like four or five uh, industrial buildings, very uh, commoditized sort of a business where it was all about making sure you've got your ducks in a row and you get a good you know, uh, tenant in there and they're in there for a long time and that, that's a good business. My mom was the opposite. She had, um, she had this kind of art business, but she was an artist, uh, first and foremost, an oil painter. So she's painted probably, I don't know, hundreds of pieces. Um, she had a company start reproducing her art years ago, so she sold millions of prints of art through, through other companies. So it's not like she's made millions of dollars, but you know, she makes a fraction of the sale. But her work is out there um, in a lot you, of different do places. Have, um, do you like it? Do is I like it, her art? Her artwork, like it must be so interesting to see somebody you know and love create beauty like that. True. And, and through your eyes, I'm wondering if it's something that you... It's not my style. Mm -hmm. Her art is not my style. Um, we'll make sure she's not listening. No, she can listen. <laughs> she knows. Look, I mean, I'm actually her, I guess you could call it her biggest critic, um, but she comes to me for the honest advice because I don't, I don't mind telling her. And I think I've always had a really good sense of what looks good. Um, so in grade school when I was growing up, I was the kid who the teacher had draw the date on the board every day because I would make it look good. And, um, and so I can, I can look at one of her pieces of art, let's say it's a still life. She does traditional types of still lifes and landscapes. So if she has me look at a, a still life, I understand the composition of what makes it look good or what makes it look bad. And I understand that um, you know, you, she shouldn't be focusing too much on the X, Y, or Z because that takes away from the A, B, and C and all this kind of stuff. So her art is not my style, but, uh, but I help her and I give her my advice on what I think looks good. She's a spectacularly talented, you know, artist from a technical standpoint. She's learned un under some of the best artists. Um, and she's actually made a really good career at oil painting, which is rare, you know. So I grew up with those two sides, the art uh, being painted upstairs in my house by my mom and the business being done by my dad downstairs in his office, literally at the same time. Neither of them ever had a place outside of the house to do their work. So um, I think I absorbed that. I just think it's kind of that simple. My brother also absorbed it a little bit and he became an architect as a way to combine those two things. So back to when I was graduating from college, I was really afraid of kind of being adrift. And so I wanted to find something that combined, you know, a sense of business and a sense of art. Um, and uh, so the salon business was one that I found. How old were you? This was 22. I moved from Malibu, which is where Pepperdine is, back to Dallas, where my parents are. and. Um, I had some inkling that I wanted to do something with salons. 
I had had many conversations with my hairstylist, so my hairstylist in LA and my hairstylist when I was in Dallas, and I thought it's the perfect combination of business and art. So right about the time when I was four months back to Dallas, I was making some money on the side with my dad, um, working for his real estate company. I was dating a girl named Emily. Emily's hairstylist moved to the first studio concept salon in Texas. And what year-ish was this? This would have been 98. So her hairstylist moved there and Emily went and got her hair done. She got home, she, she went on the landline because this was like before everybody had a cell phone. And she called me and she said, you know, you should check this out. Uh, my hairstylist just moved to the salon and it looks really cool. Never seen anything like it, but it looks amazing. So I, it was five minutes from my parents' house. So the, the following day I drove to the salon, I walked in and I met the founder of the concept of the studio concept, you know, in our industry. He had started the concept, his name is Keith Clark. He started, he came up with the concept probably in the late 80s. And this was the evolution of his own journey, which started as a normal, open, traditional salon owner. And as a way for him to uh, make it easier for him to manage his salons, he started putting partitions in between the hairstylists so they had more privacy from one another. They still got along, they still could say hi to each other and go out afterwards and all that kind of stuff. However, they didn't have to spend all day hearing each other's conversations. So that evolved into studios, private studios. And, um, and it, yeah, his name was Keith Clark. So how did you go from being inspired by this concept to being the founder and owner of Salon Republic, which is such a well-known space on the West Coast, 15 locations, including one in Texas. How, does, how do you make that leap from seeing a concept to really executing that vision? So I, when I first walked into Keith's salon and he just happened to be there, uh, I had a two-hour conversation with him. I recognized that he was a special person. I uh, interned with him for free for a year. I worked for him. So he was my mentor. And what were you shadowing? Were you seeing how he interacted with the space, how yes. he interacted with the artists, uh -huh. how retail works, how bookings work, everything. all that? Everything. Everything. I, I was just in the salon. It's just like anybody who spends time in a salon, you come in contact with all the different aspects of it. And I feel like in this industry, there's so many people, they might not always have the same job, but it's, um, one of my colleagues calls it Hotel California. Mm. You might do something different, but you never actually leave the industry. So Once true. you're in it, you're in it. Absolutely. And so for you, you got hooked pretty early on. Yeah. So, you know, my, I had zero experience in salons other than just being in them to get my hair cut before having spent the time in key salons. But it became obvious to me that um, everybody in there loved what they were doing. They're hairdressers for life. I mean, it, it's a vocation, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to go work as a hairstylist for three years and then I'm going to go sell insurance for a couple years and then I'm going to go drive for UPS, right? It's like I'm in the beauty business, right? Kind of like what you're just talking about. And with that comes this kind of passion and commitment and this kind of all-in sort of DNA 
which I had never experienced before, which was intoxicating, I thought. Um, and I, I actually still find it intoxicating. Um, I experienced how happy they were having their own space. I would hear the, the anecdotes, like a new hairdresser would come in, open up their studio, get in like the first month, and I would be talking to them and they're like, oh my God, I was so worried, but like all my clients followed me and like I'm making more money. And you know, as someone who can see both sides of the you know, creative pragmatic wheel, I'm like, this is such a no-brainer to me. Like people love it, they're happy, um, and they're doing well, um, they're doing better. So like I, I could see myself getting involved with this. So how did I move from there to Salon Republic? So you shadowed for about a year. I did. You studied under somebody who could really help showcase this concept and right. why it's gonna work and it, right. it lit a fire. Yeah, it lit a fire. So I thought, I'm gonna open a salon like this. But I don't wanna do it in Dallas because I don't wanna compete with my mentor. So where, should, where am I gonna go? I'm gonna go back to LA, which is where I spent the last four years. And did Keith know that you were going to do this? Yes. I, I told him that I was very interested in being a part of it. Um, but I, I, it didn't make sense for me to work for him. Like, he didn't have the budget to afford, you know, a, a guy like me. Um, a guy like me being, you know, somebody with some ambition to want to make more than minimum wage, right? Um, so I moved back to... I. Uh, broke up with a girlfriend. I was going to say, whatever <laughs> happened to Emily? Did we just fast forward over Emily? Well, Emily, <laughs> for the for the inquiring minds, Emily, yeah, I, well, we broke up and Emily wanted to get married, actually, if you really want to know. You're, you're making me remember, go back and remember all this stuff. She wanted to get married early and I, I was definitely not ready to get married early. So, um, so we parted ways and she ended up getting married soon after I left to a guy, I'm going to drop the name, why not? The, guy, the guy's name is Prentice Peabody III. I knew a Peter Paul Petrowski III. Really? And I'm like, you sound like, I hope this gets edited out, a Dr. <laughs> Seuss character. What is it? Pe Pe what is it? Prentice Peabody III. Damn. Right? Okay. 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 So, so, so I'm sure that she's been very happy and all's good, right? Did she change her last name to Peabody? I believe so, yes. Wow. Emily Peabody. The third. I wonder if she would be the third. Would <laughs> so, she have to be the no, third? No, I don't think so. No, I because think she'd probably be the first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I went uh, back to LA and um, I had to raise the money, you know. So I, I called all my friends who had parents with a few bucks to spare. And um, over the course of probably a year and a half, I cobbled together enough to do our first location. And so... Hold on. Okay. Why did they trust you with their money? What was it that... Did you have to have a sit-down well, meeting? And did you have to say, listen, I've got this idea. I know it can work. Like, what was the magic that sealed the deal? Or is it a little bit of that oh influence from I mean, your father was, that helped sell it? No. I'll, I'll tell you what happened is 97% of people said I was fucking nuts. And why would they ever want to get involved in the beauty business? Um, especially with somebody who had no knowledge or expertise or experience in the beauty business. Did you think you did have the knowledge, expertise, and yes. experience? I, I felt like I had the ingredients to do it. 
and I think we're kind of maybe touching on one of the things that is wrong with me, forward slash right with me, which is that I, I, at the same time, I believe that I can do just about anything, and at the same time, I believe that I don't know hardly anything. So I think back to that moment, and there was no doubt in my mind that I could do it. I had zero question. Um, at the same time, though, I think I recognized that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I, I just believed that I could figure it out. I think, I think that's the reality of it. Um, so you got the money to make so it I, happen. Yeah, so, so got the money to make it happen. And it was, very, it was a very frustrating process because a lot of the people who said that they were in with you know, an investment ended up not being so in when it came time for me to be like, okay, write the check in, you know? And then I was like, oh, maybe the time's, or time's not so good right now, or maybe next month, you know, I'll be, you know. And so um, at the time, my parents were so impressed with my ability to, you know, pitch it that they helped out in a, in a small sense. So, um, so they owned, early on, they owned a little piece of that salon. Um, was it called Salon Republic? No. What was it the was, name? It was called Chess and Berman Salon. Why? Two names of people who had a lot to do with the evolution in Texas, in the state of Texas, with hairdressers going for, or being recognized just as employees and then evolving into independent contractors. So I thought that that was a good name because it paid homage to that evolution as recognized by the state of Texas. And my mentor knew these guys and all that. And he told me the story. But after a few years of operating under that name, I recognized that it wasn't a very good name from a practical standpoint. So we changed the name to Solana Republic. That was and you're saying we. When you say we, who are you referring to? Me. I'm just used to saying we. You know, it's, it's more of a we now because we have a big team now. We probably have 45 employees now. At the time, it was just me. I mean, for the first um, probably six years, I was the only employee. I worked in the salon. Um, I don't know if we're jumping ahead. I, I it's opened, okay. I, I opened uh, the first salon of Studio City in 2000 and um, had to figure everything out from scratch. You know, made a mistake at every turn. Almost did every single thing wrong. Um, but of course, none of it killed me. So I was able to tack quickly and, you know, right the ship, so to speak. Um, I like to tell a story that um, one of the dumbest things that I did was when I, when I bought um, the salon furniture, it was a relatively large salon. It's actually the smallest now, but it's 8,000 square feet. So had 40 studios and we had a lot of uh, salon furniture and, you know, shampoo units and all sorts of heavy types of things. And you order it, you order it all at the same time, right? So I ordered it all and the truck came to deliver it. And I'm waiting in the salon for this huge delivery of 40 enormous boxes of styling chairs, 40 boxes of uh, dryer or um, shampoo chairs, 40 shampoo units, a shitload of stuff, right? I'm waiting for it to be delivered. And I'm looking out the window, and we're on the second level, still are on the second level in Studio City, and I see a big kind of tractor trailer out there on Ventura Boulevard, very busy part of Ventura Boulevard. And there's a guy um, who's taking boxes out of the truck and putting them on the um, sidewalk. 
And so I walk out there and I'm like, hey, is this the stuff for the salon? He's like, oh yeah, sign right here. And I'm like, okay, so I signed. We're up there. The salon's up there, you know. Let me know if you need me to show you where to put the boxes. And he's like, oh no, I dropped the boxes right here on Ventura oh. Boulevard. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, no, no, like, no, you, you dropped them up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, how am I supposed to get them all up there? He's like, I don't know, but my job is dropping them right here. So there was a wall of boxes, 120 or so enormous boxes. Each one's like 50 plus pounds along Ventura Boulevard, you know, ab above your, above my head. So it took me five or six hours or whatever to bring those boxes in. But that was the kind of mistake that I made over and over and over again. I don't think my lower back is the same to this day, to tell you the truth. I go to the chiropractor every single day, I have a sh or sorry, every week, I, I have a horrible back, and I literally think that it was because of that bringing of the boxes. <laughs> so, That's so you funny. know, I laid the floor myself in that location because I didn't have enough money to, to build, to, to um, put the right good flooring in every studio before we opened. I hung the cabinetry myself because I didn't have enough money to pay for a handyman. Now we're talking about the original space. The original space. And did that space evolve into, or you still are in that space? Yes. That's the Studio City space? Uh, we've redone it, of course, two or three times mm -hmm. since um, 2000. Okay. But we're still in the same space, yeah. Some of our hairdressers that I showed, you know, as a 23 or 24 year old in 2000 or in 99 when we were opening the salon are still there. And they, you know, sometimes they'll switch studios, sometimes they'll re redo their studio. They're still there and wow. very successful. So you open the salon, how do you attract artists? Because this was a new concept yeah. to this part of the country. Yeah. At the time, it was direct mail, was just about the only, of course we couldn't afford a modern salon or an American salon sort of ad, and it would have been too broad anyway. Um, so we, we did direct mail. I still have some of the direct mail pieces. Uh, the photography was from a camera that I bought and I used whatever computer uh, graphics program that I had at the time and created these pictures and uh, would send out the direct mail to the uh, hairstylist in the area and then wait for the phone to ring. And um, I, I remember those days. I remember the, the first hairstylist that I would tour and you know, feeling like I knew absolutely nothing, yet at the same time, not thinking that, that there could be any chance that I would fail. So much of the marketing and promotional materials that Salon Republic puts out now, like one quick glance at your website, you can see it's about freedom, flexibility, setting your own hours. Is that, does that ring true to the messaging um, sure. when you initially launched the concept? It was, it, it does. Absolutely. It, it, it's always been part and parcel of what we offer. It's always been the, the type of hairdresser who does best in our salon is the one who wants that freedom. Not necessarily they want to be alone because they're not alone, but they want the freedom to control their environment. They want to listen to what music they want to listen to. They don't, they don't want to have to fit into somebody else's world. They want to be able to charge what they want to be able to charge. If they want to do extensions, they could do that. If they want to use XYZ product, they can do that. If they don't want to work Saturdays, they don't have to work Saturdays. It's, it's part of that entire thing. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm now remembering kind of the tagline that I had on our first mailer. It was a black and white picture of kind of a full 
uh, black and white picture on the mailer and it was uh, an image that I captured at a certain time of day when the sun was shining in through the windows overlooking Ventura Boulevard. I was down the hallway looking towards the door of a studio as the sun was shining through the door and the brightness of the sun washed out everything within the studio. But everything in the hallway you could see. And I saw that picture and I'm like, wow, that was a great picture. And I, I, uh, I overlaid text that said, how close are your dreams? Because it looked like whatever was happening in that studio, it was almost like God himself was in that studio, shining bright. You could see the streams of light coming from inside that studio. So what, it was less important to see a specific literal thing inside that studio and much more to consider the possibilities of what somebody might want to do in that studio, whatever it is. If it's Guy Tang and he wants to twerk on YouTube, he can do it in that studio, right? If it's Jane Doe and she just wants to see her clients three days a week because she just had a baby, you know, she could do that in the studio. So whatever those dreams are can happen there. And I mean, to this day, that might be actually one of the best pieces of, uh, advertising that we've done maybe I mean if I'm to think of it from like a romantic standpoint um, but but that was that was the that was the idea back then so um, what was the negative response that you heard surely there must oh, have been something it's ridiculous um, ridiculous amount of, of negative responses the responses weren't necessarily ridiculous some of them were probably spot-on I remember one lady came in and she was a hairdresser in, in Studio City there and she looks around and she's like, this will never work. You know, why do you think this will work? There, there, no way will, you know, 40 or 50 hairdressers ever work in here together. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I certainly hope you're wrong <laughs> because I'm in trouble if you're right. And she basically just smirked and turned around and walked away. So I got, I got a good number of those types of responses. Um, I mean, my lawyer said it was a bad idea. Um, my accountant said it was a bad idea. Um, you know, I, I basically, there was feed, negative feedback everywhere because it's, it was new, you know? And whenever you do something new, um, there's going to be a good percentage of people who don't think that it's a very good idea. And at what point um, in the business did you realize you were onto something? Right away. Before we opened, um, we had about 25 hairstylists. So I felt like um, I felt like that was a a good amount of people. And I felt like the reaction from those people, um, you know, the people who are maybe, let's call them the first adopters, right? Um, of course, back then, I, I wasn't so conscious of terms like that, but they were the first adopters, in, on the West Coast at least. Um, they, their reaction was incredibly positive um, from start to finish. And um, so I, I, I sensed that I hadn't missed anything, right? I mean, I saw what was happening in Dallas, so I knew that it was happening successfully and it was making people happy and successful. Um, but I always did have a little bit of a something like, is, is California different? Is there something about the laws or is there something about the culture or 
something about the industry that's going to make California different. And um, of course, I put a lot of effort into looking into whether uh, there was something different. I never found anything, but I still wasn't sure. So right away, I think I knew that it was successful, d despite, of course, the negative feedback. I got enough positive to know that it was going to be a good thing. So business is booming. You decide to open another location. So business was, uh, I wouldn't say booming, but business, business was, was reasonably good. It does well. It doesn't make a tremendous amount of money. Okay, so you're taking me back to when I was 24 and I was running the one location. I wasn't printing money, you know? Um, a lot of people always like to say how much money I make. It, you know, it d doesn't make as much money as everybody thinks. So business was, was pretty good. It was stable. Um, I, I realized that you know, the only way to really grow would be to establish a new location. So I had to redo the process. So the salon wasn't making so much money in Studio City that I could just take it and build a new one, I guess is my point. So I had to redo the process, go back out, you know, raise money um, to put up the second location. So four years later, um, I had gone through that process and put up the second location. And that one was in Beverly Hills. It's on Pico in, in Beverly. It's actually an alleyway south of the Beverly Hills city limit in LA. So um, we've had that one too. That one's still operating and still awesome. And yeah. So how did that one do compared to the first location? That's a great question because I think... Totally different clientele, right? Different clientele um, and different mindset. I had a different mindset at that point. I had a little more confidence. Um, I had too much confidence in the Beverly Hills clientele, Beverly Hills hairstylist. I misjudged what hairstylists would be able to afford in that as location. As far as a monthly payment yeah, of rent or whatever. Yeah, it's, okay. a weekly, it's a weekly license fee. Um, and I had misjudged it and overpriced it. And at the same time, I think that I, I was still trying to kind of get comfortable with my position and how I relate to the industry. Um, I've always been sensitive to the notion that I'm not a hairdresser. Um, if I'm not a hairdresser, then what, what am I contributing? You know, I, I don't want to just be a salon owner, right? Who, who can't be there all the time, right? Because we have multiple locations. So how do I associate with the industry? Um, and so, I, you know, I was conscious about my image. You know, we talk about personal branding now, but personal branding wasn't so much of a thing back then. But that's essentially the process that I was going through uh, in my early 20s, trying to figure that out. So I misjudged a couple things. One was the pricing, and the other was um, my own image. So I think what I had done is I had gone out and I had gotten some nice clothes from wherever, Nordstrom or some kind of place like that. And I was way too formal. And I don't even like to dress like that, but I felt like this is Beverly Hills. A little slick. Yeah, I needed I need to get, you know, more kind of nice looking and stuff. So I had a button down shirt with a big collar. You know, the style was different back then. 
so things didn't go very quickly in that location, frankly. And um, that was very difficult financially and a little bit difficult emotionally. And, and I specifically remember days where it would be a Saturday and I would, it would be lunchtime and I would walk down to the local deli there and the street was literally empty of people because we were, we were part of an off, we were ground floor of an office building. So, the, so there was nobody in the office building. The, the office is empty. And so I'm walking to this deli and the wind is blowing the leaves and I'm the only one on the sidewalk and nobody's on the street. And the salon is taking off slowly. And I remember thinking, shit, you know, what, what am I gonna do? I That's think scary. It was scary. Yeah, it was, it was definitely scary. Um, I believe at that time, salon number one was supporting salon number two. And, um, you know, I had expenses, uh, rent and things like that. I, I was living very... Nordstrom bill. Nordstrom bill, exactly. <laughs> um, I was living very frugally, so I didn't have a lot of expenses. But, but that, was, that was a difficult time. Um, so I, I just kind of... Um, I adjusted. The adjustment was essentially um, adjusting the pricing. So I think I, I took the pricing down a touch, if I remember correctly. Um, and I, I started dressing a little bit more like how I wanted to dress, which is more comfortably. It's kind of like how I dress, like you made mention of my pants. These are like pajamas. They're the best. You know, like I would sleep in these pants. Yes. You know, I'd, so I started doing a little bit more like that. And that happened to be a little bit more of how the industry is you know the industry doesn't dress really slick with button-down shirts and collared shirts and looking really nice and so I think that resonated with the hairdressers who were coming in so you know how connected were you to the industry at large beyond the salon zero, zero. you didn't go to events you didn't go to industry trade shows like the one we're at today I went to um, I went to whatever hair show it might have been ISSC I don't remember back then I, I think I went a couple times, and I was a fish out of water. I felt like a total outsider. I've been, in to I've been an outsider, I mean, I've been doing this 18 years now, 19 years. I've been an outsider for 14 of them. I mean, I still kind of feel like an outsider, you know? Um, what was the turning point? At what point did you realize that this industry loves you back? Uh, that's a great question. I think it was... I think it was when we put up our um, West Hollywood location and that the hairdresser, the quality of the hairdressers that we're getting um, w was very high. And to me, that was almost an affirmation of maybe a lack of confidence that I had always had since the beginning, which is I'm an outsider, I'm a kind of a freak, pioneer, you know, some of these words, they're all the same. Some are a little positive and some are negative, right? But they're all the same. Um, I don't really belong here doing something new. A lot of people don't like it. Some people do like it. Um, I mean, the salon owners hated me. I mean, let's just start there. I should have said that a couple of minutes ago. I mean, the, the salon owners in Studio City wanted to string me up alive, you know, because a couple of their hairdressers would move over and then I was the devil. Um, and then that kind of branched out. What does out. that mean? Why do, you, why do you say that? Well, I was disrupting. 
you know? I see. So the salon owners that were not part of Salon Republic really look to you as poaching their talent, probably. Sorry, I should have clarified. Yeah, the salon owners, not necessarily the hairstylists who have studios at Salon Republic, but the traditional salon owners up and down Ventura Boulevard or within you know, Beverly Hills as the years went on, um, who would lose hairdressers, who wanted a more flexible, you know, as an independent situation, they thought that I was literally destroying the industry. And I mean, if we kind of fast forward into the teens, I mean, like 20 teens, 2012, 13, 14, um, I mean, there are still petitions, you know, to pass laws against what I was doing. Um, the kind of entrenched interest in the industry, whether you want to call it the, um, the big manufacturers who had kind of invested in a certain type of salon model. Now, do you grapple at all with, um, with feelings about this? And, and, and I would love to hear from you because, you know, I've been with Modern for 11 years and the industry has changed drastically in just those 11 years. I mean, this is before Instagram, before like online retail, e-commerce, like before, and there's been a lot of changes in a short time, yes. including what it means to be a stylist and what it means to be a salon owner. Whether you're with a commission salon, you're renting, even the vernacular, like are you sweet, are you a loft, are you a studio? How does Eric feel about that transformation and the role that you played in making that happen? Well, um, I feel great about it. There's, of course, that's not the only feeling. There's layers of feelings about it because, um, because I do have scars from the reaction that the industry had. And, it, and these are not necessarily um, emotional, personal. I, I don't like cry at night. I have a very pragmatic, of course they didn't like me. Right? Because the business or the model that they had invested in for all those years, sometimes you're talking about a hairdresser who's had a salon for 50 years, loses a couple top earners to me, of course they're going to hate me, right? So I understood it, um, and, and I did expect it to some degree. I remember telling somebody early on, maybe it was somebody I was trying to convince to invest with me, but I said it's going to be a little bit like dropping a boulder into a stagnant pond. So it's going to disrupt. There's going to be some people who are pissed off. Um, but I, it just it makes so much sense. You know, I, I can't ignore it. Um, but the, the industry has had its way of doing things for all these years. And, and a lot of people who, have, who are invested in that, who were not going to like it. Um, and so I was not welcomed forever. And I mean, I'm just now, am I starting to be, you know, somewhat welcomed in a positive sense, to tell you the truth. Well, at Modern Salon, you know, we have to, I remember the days of having to, having to tread carefully. Yeah. A little carefully about this subject and not wanting to piss people off. Yeah. It's, you know, we have our sister uh, publication, Salon Today. It's about the top salon owners and the top 20% in the country. And this is a, a controversial topic. Yeah. How they feel about it. Very much. Know? Very much. And, um, but, but I do want to answer something to your previous question about 
how hairdressers worked because it is a very important thing. Um, and, and that big evolution has certainly happened from the notion that to be a successful hairdresser, you had to be part of a team under a big banner, whether that be Sassoon or Sally Hirschberger or you know, whatever other big banner. Um, that, of course, has crumbled, right? Social media has certainly accelerated that. Um, Guy Tang all showed us very early on that you could be anybody, um, independent, and, and become bigger you know, than, than all these other names. But it started way before social media. So in 2000, when we opened uh, Studio City, like I said, it was successful already. The hairdressers wanted the freedom well before social media. Um, you know, frankly, I, I was late. I had my head in the sand with social media in 2012, 13, 14, you know, because we, we were just focusing on trying to make our people happy and successful. So we had many, many years of, of, of uh, you know, giving that sort of independence to hairdressers before it accelerated and became a little bit more of a thing. So then social media rears its beautiful head for our industry, and what did that do for your business? Well, we relate to it. I, I mean, Marissa's sitting right here. Marissa's our marketing, manage, marketing director. Um, she, I wanna say when you came on four years ago, I, I didn't know what Instagram was. Stop it yeah. right now. Yep. I, I was, I mean, I'm 43, so maybe I'm a little older than the first Instagram generation, not really sure. I, I, yeah, I'm 33, okay. and I'm the Instagram generation, you I are. imagine. So I'm a little bit older than that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Facebook was happening, of course, when I was, when, you know, uh, mid-2000s. I really didn't like Facebook. I, um, I think I got an account, probably a girlfriend encouraged me to get an account Emily? one time. Just <laughs> not, <in> not Emily. <laughs> that would have been funny though. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that, that would have been a part two. Emily gets divorced, <laughs> moves to LA. Emily in five apps. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I didn't really like Facebook. Um, I did MySpace. I loved MySpace Love actually. MySpace. MySpace rocked. Loved. Right? Yeah, I mean literally you went to my page and I would have like Pantera blasting because I love that you could put your own music when people would click on you. Yes. It was the best. Yeah. You could put your own background. You could pick your top eight. I yes. loved that. I don't know yes. if you remember that. You could pick your top eight people. Let's I remember. Up. And it's yeah. like somebody falls out of the top eight or gets in and that's like, a big oh, deal. Damn. Yeah. Right? Did you have a live journal? I had a live journal. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean this is my generation. Mm -hmm. Like all these things launched at a certain time and yeah. I think that you know what social media has done for your business now is that's ultimately where I first heard of you is really looking at some of these hair heroes that I've been following and to see them in these spaces and each one of them can do their own thing and make it work for them it's pretty transformative it is it is yeah so it, it has helped us definitely get the get the word out there for sure um, now we're we're still primarily in Southern California we have a location in Dallas Austin and Denver but but you know we're not nationwide we're not international um, so we don't receive kind of those broad benefits that social media could, could do. But it, it has helped us get the name out there um, kind of to the industry as a whole. And, and, and maybe it's, it's um, made it not as, it's made it harder to talk shit about the independent movement, I think. Because there, there was a big transition between everybody was speaking poorly about the independent movement to all of a sudden, 
those people who were speaking poorly seemed to be in the minority to, to now, you know, a progression of kind of that, where not a lot of people are doing it. I want to do some Q&A. Um, rapid fire. Yep. Role play. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question, and then I want to hear your counter-argument. Okay. Um, I don't want to work all by myself. Won't it be so lonely? Part of the reason I love this industry is because I'm surrounded by cool, creative people. Yeah. Well, I mean, Salon Republic, and I can't speak for the other studios, by the way, and I, I never do because we do things differently, but we, we try very hard to create a community. Um, a lot of our people get to know each other very well. They, they build friendships. They become lifelong friends. Um, however, they have the control over their work environment. So if they want the camaraderie and they want a, a you know, trade um, formula or trade colors or you know, talk about formulas, they can keep their door open. And there is that sort of open atmosphere. We do have parties and get togethers and things like that. If they're having a bad day though, they can close the door and have their bad day by themselves. I'm not placing big enough orders to earn enough um, points or some of the love and support that the manufacturers give the big guys. Will I do that at a Salon Republic? Do I get yes. the same education? Yeah. So we have weekly education at one to four locations every Monday um, in Southern California. And we, we've been doing a really good job of getting the best educators too, which has been really amazing. Um, and as far as like points and all that kind of stuff, we, those points filter through Salon Republic to the people who order the most from us. Um, what do you say when people are concerned that they're not gonna get um, resources, um, a receptionist, inventory control? So, um, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I always hear about the complaints about receptionists fucking up their books. But, um, you know, <laughs> technology has certainly made it a lot easier to be independent these days. Um, people that I remember touring early on before they moved into their own studio, I remember when they would say, you know, I don't want to do my own books. And then, you know, I would introduce them to one of our hairdressers and they're like, oh my God, it's so easy. You know, we just text back and forth and it's on there and they like it so much more because their receptionist doesn't screw anything up. And, they, and my clients, this is the important part, my clients like it more because they like to ask me certain questions. You know, my, um, my hair's been doing this and it's a little weird, it's freaking me out. Maybe I need an extra, you know, 30 minutes, you could do a conditioning treatment on me or something like that. Sometimes you can't do that with a receptionist. You need to talk to your hair professional. Give me a parallel industry. Can you think of anything like what happened with our industry and commission styles versus independent? Imagine this was like the healthcare system. Imagine doctors were inspired by this concept. What would that look like? Like I'm trying to think of a good parallel. Okay. For someone who's maybe not entrenched in this industry and is learning about this, Sometimes it's nice to look at a parallel industry, yeah. whether that's a plastic surgeon, whether that's a chef who works in a big restaurant and thinks they need to be under this big mm -hmm. umbrella name. Let's take architects, because I think it's parallel in many different ways, um, maybe culturally a little bit as well, um, but very much in the way that uh, architects work. I mean, as an architect, you can go work for a large firm, Gensler or whatever, and there could be a thousand architects in there and they're gonna, they're gonna tell you which jobs to do. They're gonna pay you a certain amount of flat rate. They're gonna expect you know, 60 plus hours a week and et cetera, et cetera. 
you're going to fit into the, into the culture of that office. But there's a lot of architects who work independently. They have their own, you know, John Doe Architect, Inc. They have their own shingle and they do the jobs that they want to do. They charge what they want to charge. They keep all of it except their expenses. Um, I, I think that's probably the best analogy. And do you think that would be a happier life? I think it depends on the individual. Um, I've always been the kind of person who likes to kind of control things. Um, you know, I remember, I remember uh, pledging for a fraternity and there was something that happened uh, at one of the pledge events and all the guys around me wanted to be part of the fraternity so badly and this one thing happened and I'm like, that's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard of and I don't really want to be part of something that does these things that I'm not a big fan of. So I'm out, you know. I've, I've always kind of been like that. Um, so I, I think it has a lot to do with the self-awareness of, of the individual, the architect or the hairdresser or the esthetician or whatever. Um, you know, do you want to fit into somebody else's world or do you think that you could create a better one, you know? And sometimes there's a hairdresser who maybe didn't think of themselves as being a potential, you know, for, for independence. Um, but then they try it because one of their good friends did it and they do it for a month and they're like, wow, can't believe I never did this before. So that happens a lot too. However, and I say this constantly, um, it's not for everybody. There's no doubt that's not for everybody. You know, if, if you want, if you want kind of a structure put in place for you and then you, you find a structure that is good for your personality and then you find your place within that structure um, and there isn't somebody else who changes the structure and pisses you off, you know, then that's awesome. You know, happiness and success, that's it. Like that's, that's what we want for the industry as a whole. You grew up playing sports, baseball player. Mm -hmm. Are you competitive? I'm very competitive, yep. Um, I was a pitcher, which is the independent, you know, uh, position on the baseball field. Um, baseball is the only uh, sport where the, the defense actually controls the game, the pace of the game. So um, that, that was maybe, a, that was an uncomfortable position for me early on, but my dad basically convinced the coach to put me there. And that's kind of where I grew up in baseball as being the pitcher. So it is kind of analogous to my life now that you mention it. I love analogies and parallels, yeah. if you can't tell. Yeah. Um, you're the one throwing the ball, but it's up to the other guy to take it where it needs to go, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but as far as the, you know, if we're going to talk about culture and all that, the, the culture of the game is really controlled by the pitcher. Um, you can take as much time as you want, well, you know, within reason up there. Um, everybody is watching you. Uh, one thing that I, I often did to kind of control the culture of the games early on was um, I would try really hard to smile constantly. I actually did a podcast on smiling and I never put those two things together. But when I was in high school and things had started getting very, very competitive and there were scouts and there was pressure and my, my dad, you know, was he would put pressure on me, uh, not an undue level, but it was certainly there. Um, 
I would, I would try really, really hard to smile, and I felt like there was a two-sided benefit to that. One, my, my teammates would see me smiling, and hopefully uh, that would relax them and um, make them perform better. Um, and two, I would kind of hope that the batter would think it was weird, and it would distract them. You know, and if there was any way that I could distract them before I throw the ball, um, I think that was a positive thing. I, I, wasn't a, I wasn't a hard thrower. I think my max was like 85 miles an hour, which was not good enough for me to get beyond, you know, first year college. But I, was, I had a really great curveball, and my curveball was very slow, so my fastball seemed fast. All of this, by the way, is so parallel to where you were in business and disruption and that little curveball. It I took guess, a little bit, but I guess so. I, good. I never really thought about it, but um, but uh, yeah. So then, and then another parallel actually was um, before every inning, when you know you you're I'm warming up as the pitcher. I throw a few pitches, and um, before the inning begins, the infield is kind of throwing the ball. And then before you actually start the inning, the infield comes in and you kind of huddle on the mound. I started saying, really early on, I started saying, um, let's have fun. Then, you know, very simply, let's have fun. Because I, I felt like if everyone's continued to think about baseball, right, as you move from like little league into high school when it got really serious, if you continue to think about it from a basis of fun, then uh, it would be more enjoyable and we would perform better. And um, that was, that's kind of part and parcel of the whole smiling thing. Um, and so, I don't know if it was effective or not, but that's, that was what I thought was, was a good thing to do. So then tell me a little bit about this podcast. How did this come together? Um, for so long, you said you felt like a freak, sort of an yeah. outsider. Um, was this part of kind of bridging that? Communication. Uh, it was a little bit of that. Um, it, it was first and foremost. It was the fact that um, I, I recognized that we started getting some really high-profile people at Salon Republic. I was getting to know them. We we're having these really cool conversations, and then f two minutes later, I would be walking, you know, through the salon, and I would speak to another hairdresser, and I would think, I really wish that. I could translate that conversation immediately to her because I think that she would really uh, find benefit in hearing about what we just talked about with this famous hairstylist. And so how do I do that? Um, and so we thought about, you know, would it be weird for me to just whip out a phone every time I got around guy, you know, and it'd be like, okay, it's, repeat that guy into my phone and then I'm going to send an email to everybody. That's creepy. So I can't do that. Um, and, and then, uh, of course, podcasting had become popular, and it was free and um, easy to, to distribute, and I figured that that was a really good thing to do. Um, also, it was not lost on us that if we were good at it, then people outside of Salon Republic would listen, and it would become something where we could be bringing value to people outside of our four walls which was extremely attractive to us, obviously. Um, and at the same time, there were still a lot of people that had never heard of us, even in LA, still a lot of people that had ne never heard of us. Um, you know, the, the traditional media 
didn't cover us a lot. They had no reason to. Um, so let's kind of create our own thing, you know, where, where people would get value from what we're dishing. And, um, and maybe they would learn about who we are too. Did Guy Tang become Guy Tang under the Salon Republic? Yeah, I, I hesitate to, I wouldn't phrase it in that way. I, I would say that he became Guy Tang while in his studio working as an independent art, artist. Yeah. I imagine that, you know, as Guy Tang evolved into who he is in the industry now, that it was inspiring for other people who aspired to be like Guy Tang. Somebody like Guy is on the road, he's, he's running around like crazy, he's working with this brand, he's on this stage, he's in this country. And as Instagram helped put artists on the map to have that kind of freedom and flexibility in a space that still allowed you to see clients when you were able to, it was kind of an allure. True. I think what Guy did was he made it, he made it okay for a high-profile hairstylist to no longer be attached to a high-profile name. No longer did you have to be a part of a team to be a value. And so that, that is when we started getting you know, people that were higher profile and, and they were okay with not being attached you know, to a bigger salon. Um, I, I definitely recognized that happening and he was definitely the first to do that. Um, he moved into Salon Republic in 2011 uh, at the very end you know, just, uh, I'm sorry, end of the year in 2011. Right, when Instagram launched. Yeah, right about when we opened. 2012 was, I think, our first year. And so he had come from Oklahoma, and he did his thing in a studio. And I think it's really important to note that um, Guy's personality and kind of the culture uh, that he has brought to the industry wasn't readily accepted by the other hairdressers right away. And, you know, we're, we've got a lot of themes going now, but um, on the topic of disruption, you know, Guy was disrupting, obviously, digitally, but he was also disrupting physically. I mean, within the salon, yes, everybody has their own private studio, but everybody knows each other. Guy walks up, up and down the hall. Jane Doe walks up, up and down the hall. They get to know each other. People, Jane Doe sees what Guy is doing and Jane Doe can decide to like it or not like it. And most people thought it was weird early on. You know, I, he had had some stuff out there on the internet that was a bit salacious. I, I didn't think it was that bad, but some people were like, you know, oh, he's into porn or whatever. And I'm like, he, one, you know, that he's not into porn, okay? He's, he's a great hairdresser and he's doing these things. But a lot of people weren't into it. So until the industry as a whole started becoming into it and his audience began to grow. And then all of a sudden Jane Doe, you know, down the hall in her own studio was like, oh, okay, well maybe I'm wrong. I remember he did uh, Kim Fan's hair and I was like, who is this guy? He had only a handful of followers and I was like really excited to learn about him. So I Googled him because there was no bio, um, there, was no, there was no way for me to figure out who he was. And that quick Google search pulled up some interesting results. Yeah. And um, before Guy Tang was Guy Tang, yeah. I remember, um, man, yeah, he's sort of like the Kim Kardashian of our industry. You yeah. either love him or hate him, but you know it's something powerful. Right. And man, 
it's almost like, and Maggie always says as my colleague, is that Instagram was sort of in, invented for Guy Tang. Right. He put Guy Tang, Guy Tang put Instagram on the map for us. So. Right. Because the incumbent media or whoever wasn't going to take the chance to cover them, cover him. You know, because maybe he was, because um, he was so different, he was such a disruptor that it would have been maybe disruptive to what everybody's doing. So it, it takes the audience and kind of that authenticity of where their attention goes to lend credence. So why did you decide to name it The Hair Game? I have no idea. I, um, somebody else asked me that the other day, and I think um, it was just a name that made sense. I, I wanted there to be hair in the name. I didn't want it to be cheesy. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted it to be somewhat irreverent-ish because my personality is somewhat irreverent. You know, I like to curse and stuff and I, I don't like to be too formal. Um, and I felt like calling it the hair game gives it a little bit of an edge. You know, maybe, maybe not anymore because I say it in my head so much. I don't know how other people picture it now, but um, I, I'm not really sure where that came from, frankly. There's a lot of things that you're doing right now that are very cool, very disruptive. Where do you see the next big shift in the industry? What do you think is ultimately going to have to change because we have changed? I think that, first of all, I, I don't see any tremendous shifts in the working environment. You know, I, I, I think the studio thing, people still want independence, they're liking what we're doing, you know, we're, we're essentially trying to bridge the gap between what a commission salon offers and their own storefront, essentially, that's what we're trying to do, and people are still digging it, so I, I you know, we're, we're growing, so that's still going. However, you know, this storefront salon, that's not a fading fad, that, that's not a fading trend, you know, we, we have people who leave Salon Republic to go open up their own storefronts. We have people who close down their storefronts and come into Salon Republic. Um, so I, I'm kind of seeing this, it's almost like a massive, you know, if you picture lungs breathing in and out, you know, there's, there's a lot of everything happening. And I think if, if people do a good job of branding themselves personally, they can do just about whatever they want. You know, it's, it goes a little bit uh, to your Hotel California idea. If a hairdresser uh, all of a sudden develops arthritis or something like that, but they have developed an audience of some sort, they can get into hot tools, you know? Um, I'm seeing people trying lots of different things like that. Um, but it, it is all based around the core of a personal brand. I think, you know, that, that I think is a... Um, very clear focused direction in which we're going. I think those who are doing the best job of developing that brand and the audience are having the most opportunities within the industry. Um, on social, everybody always asks about social and trends and stuff like that. You know, what, what I'm seeing may be similar to what you're seeing and that is that there's a bit of a bifur... Uh, I was about to use the word bifurcation. <laughs> there is a bit of a separation between um, the professional content creators and Jane Doe hairstylist. Uh, I'm seeing that more and more. As the professional content creators become professional, they're making more money. 
um, and they're behind the chair a little bit less and they're putting the time and they're investing everything into creating the content, editing, uh, videography, you know, very expensive cameras, paying for crews, you know, and, and at Salon Republic, of course, we have people who they, they turn their studios into photo sessions and or photo studios with all the fancy lighting and everything and that's how they use their studio full-time content 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 is everything um, so I think there is going to be a, an increasing separation between those who do that for an audience and those who are the audience you know the bread and butter butter hairdresser who's happy and successful in their salon wherever it is and they, they get inspiration and education from those who create the content uh, I think that's, that difference is going to become a little bit more stark because still there, there is a mishmash of those two things. It's pretty cool though. It's super and cool. And it's really cool that Salon Republic can serve both of those audiences. Extremely. I, and I'm, I am proud of that, you know, that we're able to kind of provide that platform. I mean, it, it, it's almost like, you know, I, I like the idea that I'm creating something that would be good for somebody like me. You know, if, if I was a hairdresser, I would probably have my own studio, you know, just knowing my personality and the way that I've done things in the past. Um, and if I, you know, found that I was good at creating content um, or if I really liked serving clients all day long and making good money at it, um, I would have that option. Yeah, I think that's cool. When we first started talking, you were sort of landscaping this picture of some of your early marketing materials to promote Salon Republic. Mm -hmm. And you talked about this, the golden glow and the hallway. And what did the message say? How close are your dreams? How close are your dreams? Would you say that that's still a golden hallway for you? Sure. You look back at that and did this, this achieved that dream? Um, have I, like personally? No. Not even close. I, I mean, I feel like I am just, I mean, I, I say we all the time because it is we now. I, I feel like we are just getting started. I mean, I feel like every day there's things that I haven't done, you know? And it's not just the 150 emails that I haven't gotten to in that day, but it's the, the, the ideas that I write down in my phone constantly, you know, oh, this would be really cool if we could do this. This would be really cool if we could do that. And, and you know, that's been the source of all the different things that we do. Like we do towels for all of our hairstylists. Um, no other studio salons do that. And, you know, the education. And uh, we're, we distribute 25 to 30 products in all the locations. We sell it wholesale to our hairstylists. Nobody else does that. And so there's lots of different little things that we do. Um, what are but, some of those ideas in your phone? What's one of those things that you just that's that's the vault that's the secret that's the secret sauce um no i'm i'm kind of kidding but um there there's i use my notes on my iphone and write stuff almost you know a stream of conscience consciousness in there same way that i come up with ideas for the podcast or the hair game um and um i refer back to it you know sometimes if it's a really great idea i'll email it to myself you know, the ideas that, that, there's a lot of ideas that I write down that don't work. They're impractical, and so we don't do them. So there's a lot of those. Um, but it's, it's, there's kind, kind of a constant sort of upwelling of, you know, ideas, you know, that I have. And um, 
it, that's why I, I kind of am, am saying that I, I don't feel like we've even gotten started, you know? Did you marry? I married a girl, yeah. You married yeah, a girl? I married, yeah. Uh -huh. And you have children? Yep. Do you Two think kids, they'll be in the business? Six and seven. I'm sorry? Do you think they'll ever be in the business? That's a good question. You know, as they've gotten older, they're six and seven now, their personalities are developing. Um, they are starting to recognize that daddy is involved in the hair business. Do they think you're cool? I don't know. <laughs> you know what's funny is they, they all go to one of our salons um, and my little girl gets some tinsel in her hair. She loves to you know, get everything done. And, and the hairdressers that my wife takes them to, they love to adorn them in, with all sorts of special you know, things. Um, one, somebody was in the salon and went up to my daughter and she said, like, do you realize how cool your dad is? Which I thought was really funny because I never really thought of it that way. I don't think of myself as being cool, but um, thank you. Um, but somebody thought that and told my daughter, you know, because she might not see me in a professional sort of way. Um, but I am starting to see kind of those worlds come together. And, and I think it's really neat. Um, my, my daughter is very insightful. Um, she meets the hairdressers. She loves to, she likes to play with her own hair. She likes to play with her dolls and all sorts of those other things. Um, she likes to be in the salon a lot. She likes to hang around Terra Studio and she goes to Terra Studio in Woodland Hills. Um, and who knows if they're gonna be involved in the business. And I think it's too difficult to, to say now. If they want to, awesome. And um, do you have a favorite location? No. Can't ask me that question. Um, I, I don't, I, uh, you know, if I'm going to just answer it as honestly as possible, um, I don't think I have a favorite location. There's certain things that I love and adore about certain locations. There's certain things I hate about locations. Um, and to me, it's like, it's a whole bunch of detail and all of it's like positivity and negativity all wrapped into one. So very hard for me to say, you know, I have a favorite. There, like, for example, I walk into our West Hollywood location and I hate with a passion the, uh, the seating area right by the front desk because the um, interior designer fucked up the upholstery, you know, six years ago or whatever. And it's hideous, I hate it. But I haven't been able to justify getting rid of it because the feedback has been that it's not that bad. Okay, so we're gonna leave it. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I love that salon. Totally love that salon, right? So every, every location has things that I love about it and things that, that I know were a mistake that I made. I chose the wrong carpet. I chose the wrong floor. I went way too high with the lights in this one area. I made the reception desk too small. Um, I, I didn't do, I wasn't willing to pay the extra $4,000 for stainless steel on the sign. I'll never make that mistake again, you know? Things like that. So when I walk into the salon, it's like sensory overload, vibrations happening. Pull out the iPhone, put it in the vault. Yes. Put those ideas down. I take pictures of everything and I write notes and then I email them either to myself or to somebody, you know, in the office who can, you know, solve it if it's something that needs to be solved. That's how I interact with the salons. 
it's a, I have a tremendous duty and a burden towards the salons. The salons don't serve me in like a, a favorite way or not a favorite, you, you know what I mean? So what do you think you would have done had you not had that girlfriend come home and sort of put this little birdie in your ear? It's a great question. Don't know. I have no idea. I mean, maybe I would have become an architect. I don't know, probably not. I could spend days thinking about that. Probably wouldn't come up with a good answer. You've really carved out the perfect home for you. This sort of art is balanced with discipline. Confidence is balanced with humility. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really special. Thank I you. feel like this is a really good home for Eric and it seems like you're just getting started. Absolutely. Thank you. That's how I feel about it. And I want to take a peek at those notes in your iPhone. <laughs> I'm I, a journalist. This is, I got to pull it out of you. <laughs> I'll give you a, a peek at my hair game notes. Okay. I, I, always get, I always get new, you know, crazy ideas of things to bring to the audience there. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's been a lot of fun, of course. I really enjoy that whole thing. But at the same time, it's a tremendous, it's become a little bit of a, you know, I say duty and a burden with the salons. It's a little bit the same with the hair game as well. I mean, I'm sure you, you recognize that with the content that you guys pro oh, yeah. produce. And um, it's, it, at the same time that it's fun, it's, uh, it's ridden with anxiety at the same time as well. Who outside of the industry inspires you the most? I really liked um, kind of thinking about, learning about, reading about Richard Branson, kind of pre-Instagram, um, because I felt like he had his hands in so many different things. Almost spread it a little bit too thin if, if I were to you know, detail my answer, but I really liked the way that um, he was so swashbuckling in the way that he went out and tried shit. Like, I'm gonna start an airline, like what the fuck? And so, I, I'm attracted to that kind of confidence and uh, fearlessness when it comes to business. I also am attracted to his, uh, the way that he markets himself. Um, I, I'm not really sure that's my way of marketing myself, but um, because it's a little bit like shameless, like um, watch me because I might die right now. And if I don't die, then you're gonna buy my soda kind of a thing. But, um, but otherwise, I, I find it very, um, very impressive the way that you know, he's, he's marketed himself over the years. And, it, it, and then kind of moving closer to current day, I think Gary Vee has had an effect love for Gary a period v. of time. I love Gary Vee. You know, so I started inspiring. watching Gary Vee on Wine Library because I've always been a wine nerd. Um, and, and, then I, and then he got more active recently. I don't listen to him anymore because he just repeats himself over and over. But um, but, you know, I think he, um, he did have, have, a, have an influence on me. Um, denim or leather? Ooh. I like leather a lot. I don't like denim at all. Um, I'm like, I don't know, denim's just not that comfortable. Like, why does anybody even wear denim, you know? I don't. I, I guess they, they make it stretch now, but still, not a denim fan. Curly or straight? I mean, I'm a natural curly, so I'm gonna say straight. I mean, I've been fighting my curly hair my whole life. I've been trying to get out this stupid 2009, 2019, you know, comparison thing on Instagram for like a month. 
And um, my 2009 picture is kind of funny because it's my natural texture. I had just come back from a surf trip and my hair was crazy. That's my natural texture. I've been finding it my entire life. I learned how to use a blow dryer, thank you to our hairdressers. Um, and so I can now get control over my hair. Beetles or stones? Beetles. American or United? Neither. God, they both are horrible. Oh my God. New York or LA? <sighs> my dad's from New York, so that's a tough question. I love New York City. Title of your autobiography? I don't have one yet. Unwritten. How about that for a title? Favorite song right now? I've been listening to um, this. <laughs> it's really my, I want to say it's my wife's favorite song that I have in my head almost like a soundtrack from the, uh, from that Star is Born movie. Shallow? That is the song I cannot <laughs> I, stop listening to? I, it's not shallow. Oh. I'm not into shallow because I, I don't it. like the, the refrain. I'm on the deep end. That's <laughs> oh my, my favorite. God, no, I can't sing. I what? can't sing. I was doing an impression. You know I can't Donovan's sing. like a professional singer. <laughs> okay, well, you guys I'm should get together. No, I don't sing. Um, it's my favorite part. It's the one where she was playing the piano in the movie and um, just a solo. I don't, I don't even know yeah. the name of the song, but it's looping in my house because my daughter and my wife love it and we have Alexas everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I have that song and, and so I do kind of shamelessly like that song. What other podcasts do you like? I love um, Masters of Scale uh, by Reed Hoffman, who's the LinkedIn guy. I like Choiceology, which is one by uh, Charles Schwab, which kind of makes it not very cool, but I've been listening to Choiceology. And Seth Godin, Akimbo. Obsessed with Seth, Seth Godin and Akimbo. One of my favorite podcasts is How I Built This by oh, yes. Guy Raz and the NPR. First, that was oh, my first podcast. That is one of my all-time favorites. And at the end of every podcast, Guy asks successful entrepreneurs and leaders, how much of it was luck and how much of it was really just good business skills? Yeah. So you can ask me that? Sure am. Um... Well, I, th I think there's no doubt that it's a combination of the two. Um, I, I think that I was really lucky that my girlfriend walked into the salon. I think that it was really lucky that her hairdresser moved to that salon. Um, and you can work back how lucky all of those things are and serendipitous and all that kind of stuff. So that, that, there's no doubt that that's a tremendous amount of luck. That, it was lucky because obviously I, I think that my personality fits what we're doing. Um, but of course, that's, it, it, you gotta, every day is a struggle, you know, from a hard work standpoint, every day, you know? And so it's, you've got to essentially work really, really hard, as hard as you possibly can, so that when you get some luck, you're there to take advantage of it. Bravo, great answer, that's good. <laughs> that's, well, that sounded pretty good, didn't it? Yeah, I can't tell you how excited I am that we got to spend this time together. Thank and you. Really learn about the start of something huge. And even yes. though you've already made such an amazing 
um, footprint with Salon Republic, I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. And the hair game is really cool because even if you're not a part of that culture and community, you're bringing some of the industry's best to the masses, which is all about what Modern Salon's about. So thank you yeah, for the time. It's such an honor to like learn from you and learn with you. I've been to several events with you yeah. just this month alone. Yeah. So it's pretty cool to see you out there in the industry and they are loving you back. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun and, and thank you. I'm humbled and honored that you did it for us. Hey guys, I'm back to celebrate our new Alexa briefing skill. Next week, we'll be giving away an Amazon Echo. For a chance to win, write a review on the Apple Podcast app or Stitcher.com for you Droid users. If you don't want to write a review, then just hit the stars. If you've already written a review on the Apple Podcast app, write one on Stitcher.com so you're doubly eligible to win. The review has to include your exact Instagram handle so we know who you are. Make sure you're following Salon Republic and Lover Taylor on Instagram, and then I put your name in a bag. Each week, I pull a name and I announce the winner at the beginning of the episode. You have to be listening to win, so you can DM me your mailing address or your email address or whatever I need to send you your goodie. If you don't win, keep listening because your name stays in the bag. You could win any week on any episode. For complete details, go to salonrepublic.com. Next week's episode will be with Erica Keelan. Until then, have a great week.